I love habits. I think they're really cool. And also I think that they're so relatable. I think I'm pretty habitual. Some of the estimates say that 40% of what we do is, is because of our habits. I think it's beneficial from a scholarly perspective that I am pretty impulsive because I can relate to that. I think a lot of academics have a hard time realizing that people aren't rational because most of them are. Most of them <laughs> find the relevant information and, and do act accordingly. Ever wanted to make a change in your life? Congratulations, you're human. But making change is hard and believe it or not, scientists haven't always helped. For decades, the field has tried to change people's behavior by educating them. If we can just convince you that it's really important, surely you'll change. The thing is, that does not work. People do what comes naturally to them. They do things out of habit or from their biases or out of temptation. My work shows that innovative ways to change behavior by targeting these types of automatic influences work. And now, in the world, more than ever, we need scientific breakthroughs in how to change people's behaviour. That's Dr Amanda Rebar sharing her work when she won a Queensland Young Tall Poppy Award earlier this year. The tall poppies recognise excellence in research and passion for getting science out of the lab and into the world. Which, coincidence, is the reason for this podcast, discovering how CQ University researchers are making huge impacts with their vital work. I'm Mary Bolling, and this is Series 2 of CQ University's Impact Research Podcast. In this first episode, we hear how Dr. Rebar's behaviour change projects are actually changing lives. It's the perfect introduction to how we can all get motivated for good. My name's Amanda Rebar, and I am the director of the Motivation of Health Behaviors Lab at Central Queensland University and uh, associate professor in the College of Psychology. Thank you for joining us. Um, so the field of psychology has spent decades uh, trying to work out how humans can change and improve, I guess, how we behave. Have we made any progress from where you're sitting? It, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, yeah. And the field's gone in circles for a while. So in some ways, we're kind of back to where we started because first we thought humans were completely um, rational and we made decisions based on what we thought was best. Um, and then we went through some different phases of, oh, maybe it's, maybe it's less about reason and more about how we feel and we're driven by our impulses. And we're kind of in this happy middle place where we realize now that some of what we do is driven by reason and um, and logical arguments, and and a lot of it is driven by irrational uh, drivers of behavior, things like our habits and impulses and temptations. And I don't. It's funny because it took, um, in particular, health psychology researchers, ones that are trying to make us healthier. Um, took us a really long time to realize how much of our behavior is not rational. <laughs> um, but when you ask any individual about their day-to-day -day behavior, it makes sense. It's not, we don't do things uh, based on how much we want to, you know, how long we want to live and how much we want to reduce our risk for cardiovascular disease. It's much more um, habit-driven and we call it automatic. So kind of, you just do what you do. 
Okay. So yes, I can uh, personally relate to making a lot of decisions just in the moment and possibly should be more about how long I want to live. But (laughs) habits, you mentioned a few times there. Now that is your specialty, I suppose. Like how do habits make a difference and how do we actually make them work for us? Yeah. I love habits. I think they're really cool. And also I think that they're so relatable. I think I'm pretty habitual. Um, Something that's really important to consider from the psychology perspective of habits is that we don't call the behaviors that we do the habits, rather we call the psychological influence on behavior habits. So we do things out of habit. We don't have habits. And I think that's really motivating when you want to try to change behavior because it points to the fact that you can actually inhibit it. So you don't have, just because you have a habit doesn't mean you have to do it. It just means it takes a little bit extra effort at the right moment to not enact the habit you don't want to do. And it also is really exciting because it opens up this whole new realm of how we can help people be healthier and happier. If we can actually help people to make healthy habits instead of um, giving them a lot of information for why they should, it seems to be more effective in the long term. And that's what I think in general psychology is really aiming for is long-term behavior change, maintenance, we call it, right? We want you, if it's something that's making your life better, we want you to do it for a really long time. And notoriously, our field is pretty bad at maintaining good behavior change. And we we think habits um, are a key for that. I'm picturing you in someone's kitchen in the morning, jumping up and down saying, okay, let's go for that 5k run. But oh, <laughs> you don't know me too well. <laughs> but uh, yeah, how, how do you actually make good habits without, um, without being in the room and uh, I have the tiger pumping? Like? I think it's really, it's really exciting because habits are going to be made, even if I'm not in your kitchen. Um, so I think what needs to happen is people need to work with the way that their, their brain's already doing things. So you already have habit, you know, do things out of habits and, and, and they drive a lot of your daily life. Some of the estimates say that 40% of what we do is, is because of our habits. So I think first realizing habits will happen. It's just that we need to control which behaviors are part of our habits. So the psychology is just that if you do something in the same place or in the same context or in the same part of your routine over and over again, your mind has a shortcut. So it just says, okay, when this happens, then I do this behavior. We call them the cue behavior associations. And your mind just has these. They go, okay, so if I'm around this person, I'm going to drink some alcohol. Or if after work, I'm going to have a piece of chocolate cake. And those shortcuts are made by your brain. And if you know that's going to happen, then if you want a healthy habit, all you have to do is link that behavior with something that you come in contact with a lot. Um, Routine's usually the easiest because that's going to happen regardless of where you are. Um, But also, you know, it's, it's what works for you. So sometimes a certain time of day or being around certain people, if you know that that's going to be consistent for you, then try to stick a behavior that's healthy or makes you happier um, in there and your brain will start to gradually form those habits to go, okay, when this happens, then I do this healthy thing or this happy thing. Okay. So it's, it's sounding really good theoretically, but let's, (laughs) let's talk about how that's playing out right now, because I guess 
you know, you're an expert in behavior change uh, and what motivates us to change our behaviors and ultimately change our lives. But I guess the pandemic has seen some pretty dramatic shifts in how we're living our lives. And a lot of that hasn't even been self-motivated. It's been kind of dictated from the outside. So when people are feeling like perhaps they don't even have a lot of control over their lives, is a pandemic a good time for behaviour change or what are you seeing play out? Oh, it's it's been really interesting. Um, right when a lot of the restric- restrictions started, um, around the world, some of the habit researchers got together and we started tracking habits and, and motivation and behaviors across different countries. Um, and to me, it's really brought to light, like you said, the two things that are really important when we think about habits and motivation. First, the fact that control is a really important part of it. So like you said, if you feel like it's other people telling you, or you can't simply because of the circumstance you're in, that's very, very different. And has, and has impacts on your long-term behavior differently than if it was something that you had done out of um, your own choice, out of agency. Um, and the other point was the reward. So something that became really salient to me was people generally, when they have choice, do things because they get some sort of reward out of it. It might not be quite tangible. It might be that it just eases your stress or something like that. But most of what we do has a reward. You, you get something out of it. And when you force people to do something that isn't, you know, that they're not used to or isn't part of their normal habits, what happens? Does it just become automatically habitual because they're doing it all the time? Um, Does it become rewarding? That type of thing. And it's been really interesting. And what we're finding is, not surprisingly, typically when restrictions are lifted and people are feeling safe, they'll go back to the habits they had. So if you don't have to wear a mask and you feel like it doesn't add value to you from a health uh, standpoint, you'll stop wearing them. Whereas sometimes if it's with social distancing, we did a study on that and found it's quite interesting because in some of the countries where there was quite tight restrictions and now they're a bit more relaxed, people actually are reporting having a hard time going away from being socially distanced um, and and not, and getting close to other people makes them a bit nervous. (laughs) Um, So it's interesting. It depends on the behavior and on on the people. And the other thing I think that's really interesting is there's there's a major reluctance to a lot of what we're being asked to do. And I think it's really important for people to consider why that is. So if you're being reluctant simply because you're being told either by people you don't respect or by authority, and you just don't like that part of it, then you really need to reflect and think beyond that, despite who's telling me the information, is it valuable to me? Um, because where we get our information is, is a huge driver of if we want to, if we want to engage in that behavior or not. And I think some of the approaches taken now aren't in line with the best behavioral science in in terms of how to get people to change their behavior. Some people are just really reluctant to being told what to do and they're getting a reward out of just not doing it simply because they were told to do it. That sounds so interesting. And I guess even outside of the pandemic, is that a barrier we all have to get over? Because I guess, you know, for the average person, for me, you don't you know, inherently know what's best for you health-wise perhaps. And do we all hit that stumbling block of you don't tell me what to do? <laughs> I sure do. <laughs> I okay, do. good. I have a little impulse to go, oh, wait, I was told to do something. Maybe I should do the other. 
Um, you can ask my husband, he'll validate. <laughs> um, but I think what's really worked for me is this reward idea. So knowing that everything I do, I do it for a reason, even if you're not aware of that. So I think if there's stuff that you want to change, if you think, what am I getting out of this? And is there a better way to do that? Um, that's a really easy way to try to implement some behavior change. So smoking is a perfect example, right? If you're smoking, you're doing it for a reward and you have to think about what it is. Is it because you get a little escape? Is it because um, it's a stress reduction? Is it, you know, because it gives you some adrenaline kick? What is it that you're enjoying? So be quite reflective of it and then see if there's something else you can substitute that gives you that same feeling. And it's hard with um, addictive substances, obviously that adds some complexity, but I think being honest with yourself with what you want and trying to find a way that replaces that in a healthier, um, way is a good first start. So you can't trade it out for chewing on celery sticks. Um, if you're looking for, you know, a little, um, giving into temptation or stress reduction, find something that replaces that, that isn't, um, what you don't want to be doing. That's, that's a really good way to explain it. You know, you, you said you're down here in the trenches with the rest of us. You're not just, you know, up, <laughs> up on your mountain looking down at how behaviour and behaviour change plays out. What personal experience have you had with behaviour change? And have you had more success with big changes or small ones? Wow. Oh. <laughs> I, I think it's beneficial from a scholarly perspective that I'm pretty impulsive because I can relate to that. I think a lot of big academics have a hard time realizing that people aren't rational because most of them are. Most of them <laughs> find the relevant information and, and do act accordingly. Um, I think a behavior change example that I've done, um, I mean, we can do wearing masks. I find that really, really interesting because it's a behavior that you're so prominently making a statement. Um, I'm in Queensland and in regional Queensland, so we don't wear masks very often. Um, because the risk isn't there, but we did have two weeks. <laughs> I know everyone will be so sympathetic to my, <laughs> but we had two weeks where we did have to wear it. And I had a really, really hard time. Um, one remembering it because I have two small children. So doing anything transitioning from being into the house to out is exhausting in itself. So then adding something else really was quite cog. We call it cognitively demanding. It just felt strenuous when you're trying to, you know, organize your life. Um, and then the moment we didn't have to, and I felt safe, I stopped. And I thought that was really interesting because everything about a mask wearing should be habitual. It's in the same context when you're going into somewhere public or when you're leaving the house. And so it's, it's the structure of the behavior is really likely to lead to a habit, but I couldn't be happier to take that off. And I think reflecting on that, it was because having that on my face had some associations with horrible things that are going on in the world. I have family and friends in America that have been hit hard with COVID and I have wonderful people around Australia that are, you know, in lockdown and dealing with it. And it just felt to me like that was all the mask was very reflective. Like it just had all of that um, into it. So I think that association interferes with the behavior change process. And I go, Oh, I don't want to be reminded of that stuff. And my brain associates this with all that COVID stuff that I don't want to have to think about. Um, so it's a, it was an interesting reflection, both academically and in my own life of, it's not as simple as behavior and cue. There's a lot, your brain associates 
a lot of con- you know good and bad connotations with the things you do and the things that are around you. You have to deal with that and and be honest with yourself when you're changing behavior. And you have to be nice. You know, the my favorite part of behavior change research is we found that if you forget sometimes or if you don't do the new habit you're trying to build, some days it's okay. It doesn't mean you're doomed to fail, you know, as long as you're kind to yourself and you say, hey, you know what? I had a bad day. Who cares? I'll get up and try again tomorrow. Or, you know, this week's just not working for me. That's okay. You got to find a way that it works for you and it fits within your life. And if you're getting this icky, visceral reaction of like, oh, I don't want to have to do this, but I told myself I would, um, it's not going to work long term. And, and, what a fun field of research I get to do when the answer is you got to be kind to yourself. You got to, you got to make your life work and, and reflect on, is this working? And if not, how can you make it work and how, what adjustments can you do to make it um, fun or make your life simpler or be satisfying for you? I think that permission to fail is so interesting, especially when so much of our goal setting is around, you know, a, a, big decision like a new year's resolution and that one failure kind of almost puts you back like oh have to wait to january 1st next year like it's not (laughs) particularly productive um short-term goal setting in the pandemic has felt pretty tough uh as restrictions keep shifting and disrupting plans so yes we forgive ourselves the the failures but um what are other ways that behavior change mechanisms can be flexible I think, you know, especially with what's going on with the restrictions in Australia, I think it's not the behaviors that need to be focused on. It's your expectations of yourself and and of others. Um, It's just really, really hard to plan anything long-term when you're not sure what the context is around you. Um, And that's okay, but you need to shift your expectations in line with what's going on around you. So you know, it may not be if, if your if your aim is to just survive and get through, um, but sometimes getting through it is enough. Um, so it's the expectations that sh- need to shift. And if it's a time where um, you feel like you can take on more and you want to make healthier changes for yourself, then that is a fabulous and and use your surroundings to to do that. You know, it's a really interesting time in life where a lot more people are reflecting on, on their life and what's going on than, than ever before. And these can be motivational moments where you go, okay, I've been forced to change. Some of those things I would prefer not to continue. And some of those things, maybe you do want to continue. Maybe you realized that having more home cooked meal with your families is a really a good thing. And you'd like to continue that. Um, maybe you realize that you don't need to, go out at night and in a bar to connect with your friends. Um, so it's, it's important to reflect on what has changed and what you'd like to continue doing and what not, and then adjust your expectations accordingly. So how can you shift your life to make sure you're doing the things you like and not the things you don't like? You know, it's a really complex field of science and it's evolving every day. Um, but the one thing that stuck with me is something Bass for Plinken said, who was an expert in habit and has been doing it for decades. Um, He said, listen, the truth is anything that you want to do long-term, you'll do if it's fun, if it makes your life more efficient. So if it makes your life easier or if it's satisfying and 
that's a really easy shortcut to just kind of gauge, okay, you know, if there's something I want to change, is it fun? Is it making my life easier? Or is there something I'm getting out of it reward-wise satisfying? And that's really um, a really nice, tight way to describe a really complex area of (laughs) of science. (laughs) Um, And I guess that then informs a lot of the work you do in terms of not just the researching, but then designing interventions. Using that approach, uh, could you talk us through some of the interventions that you've been part of and how they tick those boxes? Yeah. Um, the, the intervention we're working on now that I'm really excited about is, um, for cardiovascular and and lung disease patients. So these are people that may have identified as an athlete or be physically active before or may not, but then go through this major life event and are asked to exercise. And it's quite different than if you've exercised before, you know, it's not playing rugby or, or um, sports with your friends, which a lot of the patients talk about before, it's very different because you're in pain or you're worried that you're gonna overexert. Um, and typically the traditional um, way to get exercise into these patients' lives is to do it in a gym. And it's important that we have an exercise professional to help learn how to be safe um, and what you can and can't do under those circumstances. But my problem with it was it's very goal-driven. So my friend completed one and ran to my house, not ran, but came to my house (laughs) with a certificate and goes, aren't you proud of me? I finished exercise rehab. I said, throw that away. You're not doing that for a certificate. You're going to be active the rest of your life. So we're working with Livingston Shire and a few local rehabilitation centers to try to make it less about pulling people out of their lives and sticking them in a gym and telling them what to do and more about integrating healthy activity as part of their life. So how do we give them the control and give them the motivation to continue to do this for the rest of their lives instead of just as an eight-week program? Um, We're really, really excited and people seem to be really Um, really interested into that. And similarly, we're helping people with depression and anxiety. So all of this wonderful stuff about goal setting and using self-control is great if you're rich and in a country that you're safe and you have a house and, you know, there's all your basic needs are met. Um, But if something happens where it totally disrupts that, like a severe bout of depression or anxiety or hitting poverty or being uncertain, like if you're in a war-torn area, So we're starting to dig a bit deeper and going, okay, now we have these theories of motivation. They're cool. But what happens if we actually put real people in them, you know, that actually have comorbidities or mental health problems or financial constraints um, where they can't buy a a Fitbit and stick it on their wrist and watch it every day. So we're doing some really interesting things um, in terms of watching what happens um, when your, you know, reward system um, is totally deregulated from depression, anxiety, and and shifting how we're helping people live healthier and happier lives as a result of that, because it really screws with your reward system. And, and that's what we bank on (laughs) to to make um, people motivated to do things. So we're looking a lot into that. And that's really exciting. We're also doing cool stuff with um, industries and organizations. One of the funnest and most rewarding projects we've done is understanding how and why people um, seek help for mental health problems when they need it. And most people don't. Uh, And we're finding a lot of Australian middle-aged men tend to avoid seeking mental health support when they need it, which no one is too surprised of when I report that. Um, But we're finding that there's ways that 
we can get people the help they need without having to make them identify as someone who needs mental health support. Um, to this point, most of the systems have really banked on calling yourself out and, and being, oh, now I'm quote unquote, one of these people who now need mental health support when it, the treatment for mental health support is so different than it used to be. And it's, it's not couch counseling. We've worked with Royal Flying Doctor Services to see what they do in rural areas and it is outstanding. So it's much more about engaging people and, um, and trust and, and connecting people than sitting on a couch and saying the right thing. Um, and there's behavior, you know, physical activity is excellent for depression, anxiety symptoms. So we're doing a lot um, with um, organizations um, to try to connect people who need mental health support, um, connect the support to those people to bring it to them without making them say they need mental health support. <laughs> that, yeah, that alone just sounds like such a, a necessary uh, initiative. Um, Dr. Amanda Reba, thank you so much for joining Impact Research Podcast today from CQ University Podcast. It's been inspiring to chat <laughs> I'll check in with you in six months and see how you're doing uh, I can't wait to tell you what good habits are for <laughs> thank you so much yes lovely to talk and just everyone please remember to be kind to yourselves and to others when I talk about expectations it's not just about what you expect from yourself but what you expect from your friends and your family and your workers as well um, be kind to each other honestly Inspiring advice from Dr. Amanda Rebar. She's the director of CQ University's Motivation of Health Behaviors Lab. You can follow her team's amazing work at MOHB Lab on Facebook or visit cqu.edu.au slash research to explore life-changing projects across CQ University. Next week, the motivation keeps coming as we hear how technology can be harnessed for transformative education. They push the novelty. They say, isn't this awesome? Isn't VR awesome? Isn't robotics? Aren't drones awesome? They're very cool. And they are very cool. The teachers, they want to know about the pedagogy. They want to know how it can be used in the classroom and whether it's effective in their classroom. Look for that episode with Associate Professor Michael Cowling next Monday and make sure you're following CQ University podcasts wherever you listen to get our latest episode every week. Thanks for listening to Impact Research Podcast from CQ University, where research makes real impact.